0: This is the biggest story in the world, and today we meet Shell. Right at the very start of the campaign, the Guardian set their focus on keeping it in the ground. Keep the coal in the hole and the oil in the soil. They decided the best way of doing that was to call on the big institutions to divest their funds from fossil fuel companies, effectively delegitimizing them, like the tobacco industry before them. So what about the fossil fuel producers themselves? What do they think about divestment? Are they scared? Do they even agree with Bill McKibben's keep it in the ground numbers? We know they've made noises about renewables in the past, but are they serious about moving off fossil fuels entirely? And if they are transitioning, can they possibly do it in time? So today we go straight to the wellhead to Shell's Ben Van Burden, one of the men taking it out of the ground, to see whether he sees a future.
1: I'm here with with Damien Carrington and with Terry McAllister, that's our environment editor and our energy editor, and we're waiting for Ben Van Burden to come in from Shell. Um, Terry, just give us a quick uh, outline of who Shell is, how big they are, what do they do?
2: To all intents and purposes, the second largest oil company in the world. They're owned rather strangely jointly between the UK and Holland. They're involved in all aspects of fossil fuel production. They bring it out to the ground, they refine it, they ship it all over the world. And of course, you'll see their petrol stations. Um, They've got revenues of around $500 billion a year. They've got proven reserves of 13 billion barrels of oil, which amounts to 4.5 gigatons of carbon. And, and any of us who have a pension, quite a lot of that money is probably coming from Shell, isn't it? And they are very, very attractive to all our pension funds because of their high dividends that they pay on the back of their enormous profits, which are around £15 billion a year. And who is Ben? Ben is a new chief executive who's come in 18 months ago, and he's an interesting cut away from the traditional rather dour chief executives that Shell have had in the past. He is a Shell lifer, so he has come out of the system, but he's upbeat, accessible, articulate, and becoming a very high-profile advocate of a new, responsible oil company. And Damien there
1: is a controversial company because what they're doing in tar sands and the arctic what are they doing
3: so uh, in terms of tar sands which is digging up large chunks of alberta and and boiling the oil out of it they're already there in a, a big way the problem with that is not only does it take a lot of energy to get that oil out it's also expensive and a number of analyses have suggested that any sensible scenario for climate stability does not include tar sands. That argument also applies to the Arctic again probably because of the cost of it but I think with the Arctic in addition there is also great controversy because any accident that would happen in the Arctic could be catastrophic for both the environment up
1: there and for the company in terms of the cost of trying to deal with it. And they're also controversial because of who they fund. There's an outfit called the American Legislative Council. Who who are they and why is that controversial?
2: Well they're most Known certainly to environmentalists, as climate deniers, pure and simple. So Shell's involvement in that organisation looks curious. It's a very controversial organisation for Shell to be associated with.
3: I think other companies have left, have they,
2: Terry?
1: Yes, they have. Well, let's see what he's got to say. Um, ben, it's, it's, uh, thank you for coming in. It's, it's good of you to come in and, uh, and talk. Let's accept, for the purposes of this conversation, that fossil fuels have brought great benefits to society they've enabled riches beyond measure to develop that we live much more comfortable lives as a result of oil but nevertheless there is a wider cost and a wider fear uh, about the future of fossil fuels so what do you think about the what seems to be a widespread acceptance that if we go beyond two degrees of warming then there are major Major problems for the human race and the kind of existence that we lead at the moment.
4: You know, I accept the fact that you know having the climate change beyond two degrees C is probably uh, highly undesirable, and we should do everything to prevent that from happening. That uh, in that sense, there is no there is no contest, and it whether it's two degrees or two and a half or one and a half or whatever. I d- I don't really mind too much. What I do know is that we will have to act quite effectively and quite early now to make sure that we have a chance of staying within CO2 concentrations that are often linked to this two degree scenario. What I find troubling is that we have known this for some period of time, but as a result of it, not much has happened. Now, we can go into a long discussion, why is that, and who is to blame, and what could we have done differently, but the result is, because nothing much has happened, as a matter of fact, a lot of the things that we have done while setting targets and having tough language around this, and maybe here and there are a few measures, is that we have been increasing the intensity of our economy in terms of carbon emission, and policy, really meaningful policy action has been delayed. Now, What that has done in my mind, Ellen, and, it has, and partly for me as well, it has created a sense of frustration and of course, uh, I can do something about it in a slightly different way than the general public. And the frustration with the general public is is now leading to, well, you've got to do something. yeah. So now, whether that is going to be, well, let's divest from companies like Shell or let's make statements uh, of, of whatever kind. I think that you can debate it. Uh, my view is that uh, the things that need doing is meaningful policy change or policy adoption. And we should be very, very careful that the, the current argument around the carbon bubble and we cannot allow this to happen and we should divest from fossil fuel companies, that that actually is creating the illusion that there is a simple solution out there. Whereas in reality, we all know
1: there isn't. Let's let let's come back to the solutions because I just want to see what, what, what we accept, so what the common yeah, ground for this yeah. conversation. So, so to two degrees, you broadly accept. Yes, absolutely. Um, now, you, you'll be familiar with the Bill McKibben article in... in rolling stone i yeah. guess so so the budget that, uh, yes. Yeah. so let, let's just see what you think of the two other figures there. 2 degrees is the first interesting figure the second interesting figure is that if we're going to stay within 2 degrees then we can afford to burn about 565 gigatons that, do you do you accept that there's a, a figure of roundabout about that, that that is compatible with staying within 2 degrees
4: you're absolutely right if you if you do simple math along those lines You could argue that there is a a limited number of of tons of of carbon that we can burn in an unmitigated way. Absolutely right.
1: So, let's just see what you think of the third figure, which is the uh, amount of proven oil, gas and coal reserves, which he says is 2795 gigatons. He says that's about four or five times the amount that we can safely burn. Do you accept that? Not sure about,
4: again, the precise numbers, but if you will add up all the carbon that we have sitting in the ground, uh, gas, oil, coal, you'll come to a number that if, again, you would just burn it in an unmitigated way, would probably have a CO2 loading in the atmosphere that is above the
1: level that people link to to CO2. There's no contest there, Alan. So common sense interpretation of those figures is that companies like yours have got already far more oil, gas, and coal than, than they could ever use. I think that's where the logic goes wrong. <laughs> Tell me where, where, where that's wrong. So, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is there is probably
4: more uh, hydrocarbon uh, resources sitting in the ground than uh, we collectively can dig up, pump up, and burn. But uh, at the same time, they are in different types of, uh, of, of carbon. So if you look again at coal coal has a much higher carbon intensity uh, if you look at the, the sort of co2 equivalent of the coal resources that we have that is actually almost half uh, of uh, of what is available if you want to use the concept of a budget uh, then indeed we
1: have an you know we have an issue can i be, when you say we have an issue that, that what you're saying is you own more than could be used. We
4: as society have an issue. Yeah. And uh, do you it, say
1: that about Shell too? No, I think in the in the end, of course, the resources
4: that will get used, uh, if we all behave rationally or if there are p- policies that do the most rational thing, the resources that are going to be used, hopefully are going to be the resources with the lowest carbon intensity. So that may be class of resource like gas over coal. But within the type of resource it may be resources that from a well to wheel perspective have the lowest carbon intensity. So if we want to look at our business, we want to make sure that our business is as future-proof as possible from a number of perspectives, including
1: CO2. Your argument is that you're more interested in the cleaner... Fuels than the the dirtier fuels. If I can be, I'm I'm, I'm the layman in this room, yeah, so I'm yeah, I'm using I'm using yeah, that's, that's ordinary language. Yeah. I would,
4: would probably say the lower intensity fuels and the higher get intensity get fuels, gas rather than gas, than than gas rather than yeah. oil. Yeah. Yeah, because bear in mind, quite often people confuse climate change with the pollution that comes from coal in the form of particulates, which are of course two separate issues. But the point is, Alan, and I think there's nothing wrong with the logic. Is we cannot burn all the hydrocarbon resources that we have on the planet in an unmitigated way and expect to have a CO2 loading in the atmosphere that is often being linked to the two-degree scenario. So we have to do a number of things. Part of it is shifting to the cleanest form possible. Part of it is having as much as possible an efficiency drive so that we do not use or need as much as we can. Uh, As much renewables uh, or any other form of energy that has no carbon associated with it. And even then, we are not going to get to that sort of constraint if you like. So on top of it we will need to do extra tricks which is capturing the carbon and storing it and I'm absolutely convinced that without a policy that will really enable and realise carbon capture and storage on a large scale we're not going to be able to stay within that CO2
1: emission budget. Okay, let's let's come back to, to that because that's very important Why are you spending so much time looking for more oil if you've got more than you could use already uh,
4: well all the oil that we have we will use even under a scenario where we will have a, a very very effective set of policies to drive down uh, the use of, of hydrocarbons there will still be need for hydrocarbons for some time to come of course and the the rate with which we will be able to either sort of slow growth or even reduce uh, or switch from growth to shrinkage, the rate with which we will be able to do that is always going to be lower than the rate with which resources deplete. So there will always be, even in the most aggressive scenario, a gap between supply and demand if we don't continue to invest. So there will always be a need for investment because it will take longer before we get to a point that we will have no need for hydrocarbons. I think we will get to the point where we have zero emissions by the end of the century, Definitely, I'm a firm believer in that. But even then, some of the hydrocarbons that we will use and the emissions that will come from it will simply be mitigated rather than not produced. There will be significant sectors in the industry that will depend on hydrocarbons. Petrochemicals, for instance. Yeah. So I think to just say we can do without hydrocarbons and we don't need them anymore, stop exploring for them because they are coming out of our ears already, that is that is not quite an accurate reflection for a company like us.
1: So there's one argument about the the quantum of oil that you're 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 searching for, uh, another is that the type and location people find Tar Sands very problematical as a as yeah. a yeah. environmental. How, yeah. how how do you defend that? It's a mining
4: operation. Uh, I'll be uh, the first one to say that, uh, that mining operations do not look pretty. Uh, you're right that uh, there is a significant CO2 emission. Uh, take our Athabasca project in Canada, where we are a 60% shareholder. is 6.5 million tons of CO2 coming out of uh, the mine and the upgrader combined. And that is, of course, a significant number. So we have to look for ways and means to deal with that. What we are doing at the moment is investing in a carbon capture and storage project uh, on this particular mine. So we will be capturing of that 6.5 million tonnes, 1 million tonnes of CO2. And that sort of gets us a fair way towards the average CO2 intensity of North American oil.
3: I mean, just very briefly on that, you're talking there about the emissions that derive from getting the fuel out of the ground, not from actual burning the fuel itself. You're talking about the operations. Yeah, that's true. That Six and a half million tons is the mining and upgrading
4: operation. Mm-hmm. Burning the fuel in cars and uh, et cetera is, of course, still the bulk of uh, of it. Yeah. Uh, but in that sense, it's no different. Or as a matter of fact, because it is a synthetic crude that we make there, it actually is a higher quality crude. So the, the CO2 emissions associated with use of that crude are probably somewhat lower than mm-hmm. the average. But in the main, you have to look, therefore, from well to wheel or mine to wheel, and that's the only sensible way to look at CO2 intensity.
3: Fair enough, yeah. I wanted to come back. You were talking before about the, the very clear conversation you and Alan had to begin with about accepting that the, all the reserves, when you add them up, are, are too much, you know. Um, and you were talking about using, like it would be logical to use the least carbon intensive first, okay? But there's another logic in the real world, which is using the least cost first, okay? That's where some of Shell's operations start to look difficult in the sense that tar sands come out at the very high cost end the arctic comes out at the very high cost end and so in a rational world if we're deciding we're not going to burn everything those are the projects that get stranded first so i'm just wondering if you accept that there's too much what's special about shells tar sands or arctic which means that it is sensible to go after them when they're clearly high cost and saudi crude would be far cheaper and more sensible to use
4: yeah yeah it in the end is going to be market forces of supply and demand that set price and then it's going to be rational decision making of investors that are going to figure out do I get a return on investing in this project the only way you can impact that and this is why we are also great advocates of what I'm going to say is put a price on carbon and then say well I'm not really interested in the merit order that may flow from sort of normal rational decision making around economics i'm going to tweak the the playing field i'm going to put a serious price on carbon that is the sort of rational decision making that that we would like to see much more of and that's why we are advocating for a firm price on carbon
1: yeah just to go on the arctic it's very high risk isn't it it's it's, um, some people say it's reckless i'm familiar
4: with that argument alan and it and, um, and your response yeah well The more I I listen and think about it, I actually hear two sets of arguments. And there's one argument that says, listen, this is a a very sensitive environment. It's pristine to a very large degree, Uh, of course. It will have great difficulties to uh, deal with environmental uh, impacts. Putting oil and gas operations right in the middle of it doesn't seem like the right thing to do. There's a second line of reasoning that I also hear, and I hear that probably more loudly which is, listen, you know, we have climate change, the Arctic is disproportionately impacted by climate change, which is probably a fact, yeah? and climate change is caused by, of course, oil and gas, and therefore exploring for oil and gas in the Arctic is insulting. That is an emotional argument, and there is no amount of reasoning that that I can bring to bear to to deal with that emotional argument. Uh, and I'm not going to try that uh, even because it, uh, I think it probably does us a disservice as well. I- in the end, we also have to make our decisions on the basis of logic. The opening up of the Arctic is not our decision. It's a decision of an Arctic nation, in this case, the United States. And it's our task to figure out, can we do this responsibly? Uh, can we do this profitably? And can it be done at all? Yeah. And if the answer to all of that is yes, then we should consider it as an investment opportunity. And we can only get into the Arctic in a responsible way if we can completely convince ourselves that we are able and ready to do this at a level of risk that is completely acceptable. And uh, believe me, I have had to go through a personal journey on that as well. Uh, bear in mind, I had the opportunity very early on in my tenure to say, that's it, let's pull the plug on it. And we decided, no, we have to follow this through. We have to understand whether it can be done.
1: When you came to The Guardian last year, you said you had the same discussions around your breakfast table as everyone else, um, yes. and and you've just hinted in your last answer that that you you sort of wear two hats as an individual. You you've got your member of society, and but then I I guess you go into work and you then have your primary responsibility is to shareholders. Mm. Uh, how often do those come into conflict?
4: Um, I could either say all the time or never. It um, and let me explain what, what i mean by that you are a very different person as well yeah i of course read your editorial when you said listen this is one of the regrets that i may 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 have and i want to do something about that and that is in my mind the same sort of drive that that i have in uh, in in this matter of course i'm driven by business success etc but what i'm also driven by, and this is why I'm very, very happy to come and talk to you, even though we probably will never agree on a number of points, is that we need to do the right thing here. It's very, very good that there is a broad societal debate on this, because I am completely with everybody else on this subject, that we need to tackle this. I'm also completely there, that there is a secondary moral challenge which is supplying affordable energy to billions of people who do not have an acceptable lifestyle, and where I get a lot of my energy from, is that if I see that part of the societal debate seems to suggest a very simple solution that we know in reality is not there, I think we are creating somehow as society a red herring and doing ourselves a disservice. And in a way, we are, because of the belief that there may be a simple solution out there, like you know, divesting out of fossil fuel or stop using it or whatever else, we are actually delaying meaningful policy action. But in, in reality, it will not happen this way. In reality, there will be an inexorable drive for people to raise their living standards, to use hydrocarbons, because that will be the only meaningful volume of energy that is available. So we have to do something else, Alan.
1: What do you think of the argument that says... This isn't a level playing field. That, that Your industry is getting too much in subsidies, and if the renewable industry has got as much subsidies as you get, we'd crack that problem quite soon.
4: First of all, I'm not a, not at all in favour of subsidies. Now, you have to be a bit precise on what you mean by subsidies, but directly subsidising fuel use, like, for instance, happening in developing countries, etc., I do not think is meaningful. I think companies like ourselves effectively don't get subsidies. Yeah, It... Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, we pay significant taxes. You can talk about externalities, pricing that fully into, and then,
1: but that's not a subsidy. The IMF came up with $10, $10 million a, a minute the other day.
4: Yeah, yeah, the $5.3 trillion. Yeah, these are pricing in the externalities of air pollution uh, into the price of energy, etc. And, that, and that, uh, I'm sure that these numbers have validity, but that's not a subsidy.
1: But do you, do you, do you accept that the, that the odds are stacked against the renewable industry? Because no, you've, you've, you've got tremendous power, your no, industry, no, in, in th- terms no, of lobbying don't so. and access. I don't and think so. If you look at uh, at renewables,
4: and let's be very clear, and we have a renewables business and I work very, very hard to understand how we can meaningfully participate and of course make money with it as well. But if you look at the rate with which renewables are growing, it's absolutely unprecedented. Yeah, It is growing at, I think, the fastest pace of any new form of energy, almost reaching the point where it's 1% of the total energy mix. But it's only 1%, bearing in mind that the energy system will have to double in size over the first half of the century to serve all these new Energy users that we need to serve around the planet, renewables is not going to cut it. So we will have to do
3: multiple things here.
1: I've got lots of hands waving to my right. I
3: go like first on the poverty side, you talked in your response to Alan there about feeling this kind of uh, moral responsibility, you know, as an energy provider. I think the point where we might disagree is about whether fossil fuels are the solution to that particular problem. And I just wanted to very briefly tell you a bit about what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, Said, which, of course, is written and reviewed by thousands of the world scientists and signed off by 195 nations. They say climate change, driven by unchecked fossil fuel burning, is, quote, a threat to sustainable development. They say that uh, limiting climate change's effects is necessary to achieve sustainable development and equity, including poverty eradication. And they go further than that and say that climate change will prolong existing and create new poverty traps. So, I mean, that's a pretty authoritative document, saying that fossil fuels are not the answer to providing
4: you know, energy sorry, to billions of people. It doesn't say that.
3: Okay. It says that
4: climate change is indeed also devastating, probably disproportionately, the poor people in the world. And I can fully support that, having lived in Africa myself for quite a few years in the Sudan. But it doesn't say that fossil fuels is not a solution for it or that energy is not a solution for it. People in these circumstances will still need access to fossil fuels will need access to energy in general and the most sensible way to do that on a scale that they need it will be unfortunately through fossil fuels i don't Again, understand
3: how you have right. one without the other you're kind of saying climate change is a problem but they still need fossil fuels but fossil fuels are the things ah, that but, are driving this climate is, change okay
4: so this is the, the 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 dilemma that we need to solve we need to find a way to providing affordable energy to poor people in the world that do not have access to affordable energy at this point in time, and at the same time, we need to reduce CO2. And if we somehow think that we can do all of that with renewables, that is just ignoring the realities of, of economic and technical development.
3: Well, it's fair enough, but people disagree with you, and I've seen it in India, you know, where um, when you're a long way in rural communities, they're not going to have a grid there, they're not going to have um, big fossil fuel power stations, and solar is cheap absolutely and that, and you will see that happen
4: you will see probably the development of countries that do have nothing at the moment following a f- fundamentally different path than the UK or Germany or the United States absolutely but they cannot skip large scale energy provision for meaningful economic development yeah that is just not going to happen by solar and wind
1: now i'm i'm not expecting you ben to come here today and say that you agree with divestment as an idea and I'm going to anticipate that that you say that it's better to have good money in your companies rather than bad monies, and that that you prefer the idea of engagement. And I'm just going to see if, if whether Francesca can just play a little clip, because we had Jonathan Porritt sitting in your chair uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was, he, I, we were talking about this. He, he spent 40 years in this business trying to engage with companies like you, and Let's just listen to what he says about engagement.
4: They've had so many opportunities to put their houses in order and get after this much smarter decarbonized route to energy security, affordability,
2: and sustainability. They really have, I mean, limitless opportunities over the last decade. And you just say, you're all smart, you're paid God knows how much money to steer through these complex areas you have a fiduciary duty to your shareholders. And yes, you've been
4: meeting that at one level, but at another level, in terms of guaranteeing long-term value creation for shareholders,
1: you are betraying your shareholders. And you are risking the write-off, the destruction of massive value inside the company. I'm sure you know, Jonathan, he's not a sort of um, extremist or loony um, eco-warrior. He's somebody who's tried to build a business uh, engaging with people like you. And in the end, he said he's come to the conclusion is just never going to happen because of the you know it's it's the wrong question to ask you you you've you've got different priorities
4: uh I, i wouldn't say that it uh so we'll get to the question of divestment in a moment but the question probably that or the challenge in here was do we sufficiently recognize the the need for a transition either because of assets getting stranded or because of the new opportunities that we as a sort of a a responsible member of society need to also explore and develop. I fundamentally do not believe that that actually holds business rationale, simply because even under a, a very, very aggressive scenario where we get out of fossil fuels, the scenario with which fossil fuels' existing production depletes will always result in a divestment or an investment opportunity so therefore investing in fossil fuels will remain relevant for a very very long time to come for our shareholders as well.
1: Just to jump in there you have got people like the governor of the Bank of England flagging that up as an issue.
4: Yeah well okay I will not comment on uh, on the governor of the Bank of England but the investment opportunity will always remain and if you have an advantage portfolio you will always be able to make money out of that so so therefore that argument in my mind is just comprehensively non-existent. It may sound seductive, but it's just not there. Now, the other argument, which is, do we have opportunity or do we have even an obligation to invest in low-carbon energy future? Absolutely. Because I also know that whatever I'm going to find as a business model or as a technology that will work for me is going to take decades to be pulled off. Can I just remind you that we have been very, very active participants in solar energy, in wind energy, biofuels. Uh, we were in forestry. In many, many areas we have been ahead of our time, simply because you know the opportunity to really meaningfully invest in it was just not there. So I want to be on the one hand careful that we do not repeat that mistake. On the other hand, we are very actively experimenting with new businesses to find how we can participate in a renewable-based energy system,
1: because it will come down. There's a letter in the Times today that says you spend three times as much finding new fossil fuel reserves as you do on developing renewables. Does that sound the right figure? Yeah, but it.
4: Uh, no, we we do not spend a lot of time uh, sort of inventing an improved wind turbine or uh, figuring out what sort of new uh, solar panel technology would be there you have to also in that sense sort of go back to core capabilities if you were to set up a um, a solar pv business you wouldn't hire a bunch of geologists to uh, to figure out how to do that yeah but making money out of out of a renewable future absolutely this is something
1: that we that we need to do tell me about these conversations with with people like welcome and, and gates they say we we like investing in companies like shell because we have influence um, and if we if we took our money out we wouldn't have that influence but no, nobody can ever point point to what that influence looks like or or what results from that can you can you enlighten us to what what good things come from good conversations with good people as opposed to bad people of course we talk to all our shareholders and certainly and of course from certain
4: groups you hate us more than from other groups there is concern around Uh, the carbon bubble and that is probably a mix of concerns uh, where some people are really concerned with the governor of the bank of england argument like can these assets really become stranded and you have people who are in there indeed for uh, again sort of belief reasons fundamental reasons i do not want i believe fossil fuel is bad it sits in, in in a bracket of investments that i don't want to be in some of the advocacy can help to point out that uh, you know there's a lot of good things that come from energy. As a matter of fact, uh, people use energy and fossil fuel products much more than they will ever realize, and they don't realize what w- the world would look like without it. And I think we we can also help people uh, a little bit more along. The understanding line by pointing out what it is that we are doing and, and where we think we are indeed a progressive company in making the energy transition work. Uh, the problem with that is, Alan, is that we're not we're not very good at it. Yeah, at that at that sort of public advocacy piece, we have over the many years built up a reflex that engagement uh, has more reputational downsides than upsides, and I think to some extent, therefore, we are partly to blame for the dysfunctionality of the debate in society at the moment. So I, I want to change that. I want to be working for a company or leading a company that is that is not only uh, considering itself a force for good, but is being recognized as a company that is responsible, does the right things as well.
1: You're, you're sometimes now compared with tobacco or with South Africa as, as, a, as a kind of a thing in society that is becoming toxic. Do you, do you accept that that's, that's just going to get worse for companies like Shell? Uh,
4: it would be a tragedy, I think, and not only for a company like Shell and its employees and, and for me personally, but I think also for society. It would be tragic if people thought that uh, having access to modern energy and basically having access to the lifestyle, the security, and the life expectancy that we have was actually a bad thing. Yeah. And sometimes, a little bit facetiously, I just tell people, if you want to, you know, divest your portfolio out of uh, fossil fuel companies, as much as people have divested them from tobacco companies, etc., you probably are going to make more impact by divesting your lifestyle from fossil
1: fuels. And then look for a moment what that will do to you. You, you. You essentially, I think, put the responsibility for change on the policymakers, so it's like yes. saying, stop, stop stop me before I kill again. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> you're saying we can't do this as a company unless there's a level playing field for everyone. And and you say you've been lobbying for this, but you still put a lot of money into things like the American Legislative Council, which other people have pulled out, which which is lobbying in the other direction. Uh, yeah. You've got mixed messages.
4: I do not want to leave the impression that it's all the policymakers' fault. That would be too easy. Policymakers respond to uh, input and insight that they get. Uh, sometimes that is indeed by voters and public opinion. And, and I think we can do more and we should do more to uh, advocate for sensible policy. And I am not ashamed because I think we are advocating for things that I can 100% stand up for. If anything, I feel that we have not done well enough. I think sometimes our policy advocacy has been too high level. We can do more, we can do better, and I wish I was ready, but I will be in a few months' time to tell you a whole lot more about what it all means in detail, because we have a massive amount of work going on in that sense to have much more bespoke, targeted policy advice based on the sort of transitions that we can see happening different types of economies around the world. Now, some of the advocacy we do on our own some of the advocacy we do in the context of a trade association or a professional advocacy group. And what you typically find if you are in there is that well, it's some of them you have high degrees of agreement and some not at all. And we have done it in many occasions where we, you know, we're part of a trade association and say, well, we stand for all the things that they say here and there, but at this point we disagree with and our advocacy is the following. We
2: well, can I ask about I was gonna the, just let Terry Still in terms of um your overall position, you your, your keen to be seen as progressive, you're keen to be seen as responsible and obviously that's um, to be lauded and and the industry desperately needs someone to to step into that space but still it's confusing in terms of the kind of lobbying groups um, that you support but it's confusing when your own emissions, your own carbon emissions are going up year by year, they're set to increase even more by taking over BG um, your involvement in oil sands, tar sands and the Arctic still, you, you sort of put it down to, well, if it's available through policymakers, then, then we're going to um, proceed. But companies like Total have said that they won't explore in the Arctic. Would a oil spill in the Arctic potentially end the future of Shell financially? Well, the thing is, of course, to avoid
4: a very large oil spill in the Arctic. The risk of a very large oil spill in the Arctic is unacceptable for me. So if I feel that there is a, a risk that that could materialize, we would simply not go ahead with this. Yeah? So I do not think we send any conflicting signals on our advocacy. If we indeed associate ourselves from time to time with trade organizations or with advocacy groups that have a different viewpoint, we go at length to explain how our viewpoint is different, if it's meaningful. And if it's too substantial, then we will just step out of these organizations. So watch that space as well. If you go back to our own emissions, of course, our own emissions will go up because we will combine with BG. But it doesn't mean that... But they're going up anyway. That you know, emissions in general go up. It's just that we have become a different company. I think to look at sort of emissions as an absolute way is, is somewhat meaningless as well. You have to look at the emission intensity of the classes of assets in which you operate.
1: We're running out of time, so I'm going to ask you one last question. When we did a um, Q&A with Guardian readers on the site, the only question that readers wanted to know about me was what car I drove. And I was able to answer truthfully that I thought I was the only editor to have owned not one but two g whizzes described by jeremy clarkson as the worst car in the world um what car do you drive ben
4: i uh i drive a
1: bmw what, what kind of size are we talking about
4: oh it's a it's a 645 convertible that's Wonderful
1: terrible that's a that's an enormous gas guzzler <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself coming in here talking like this ah
4: come on you have to believe in your product as well so i put it full of full v power all the time and it drives abundantly. oh you've
1: ruined everything anyway look ben thank you very much for coming in and um stepping into the lion's den and um, talking so eloquently. Thank you
4: Thank you very much and thank you very much also for your leadership in this space Alan, I really appreciate that as well
1: Terry, Damien what did you make of that?
2: Um, I'm still troubled by the fact that there's a lot of drivers that encourage Shell and and, um, the chief executive to go in a a fossil fuel direction despite um, all the interesting comments he had to make about the importance of climate change and wanting to lead this debate and be a responsible actor. I'm still uh, very unconvinced by the difference between what they say and what they do and particularly the um, I'm afraid the sort of inadequate answers over your questions on things like tar sands and particularly the Arctic where um, they're still taking a massive risk and I don't see how the company can hope to be taken very seriously on the issue of climate change and uh, emissions controls. When its own emissions are going up, it's growing the size of the fossil fuel business, it's moving into a very, very dangerous and pristine environment like the Arctic. To do him credit, it was fairly remarkable that the CEO
1: of a company like Shell should come into The Guardian and take part in a conversation like this I mean that that is a different breed of executive isn't it for a company like Shell
3: absolutely I mean Terry will I'm sure tell us in a minute because he's met many more energy CEOs than, than than I have but I think it is remarkable and I think if you just contrast it for example with our current relationship with Exxon Mobil where they send us the same sentence every time we ask them for a comment which is we're not talking to you.
2: What's interesting about it is that Ben Van Burden at the end of the interview talked about how Shell itself was was looking at fine-tuning its own policies on these issues and indeed at the moment is looking at producing its own document. It it seems to me that they genuinely are in a position of flux. Fortunately, they've got a chief executive who who seems to be very self-confident. He's very articulate and genuinely interested and wants to be engaged and and as you say his predecessors didn't do that despite repeated requests so I think it is encouraging and, and I do get the impression they may be open to argument and persuasion and what about the size of his bmw I actually asked the same question to Jeroen van der Veer, one of his predecessors, and he um, told me that he rode a bicycle because fuel cost too much. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know which was more amusing. I rather expected um, Ben van Burden to be driving a large-scale saloon, as he said, as a vote of confidence in his own business. Can I just say one last thing, which is that, um,
3: you know, obviously The Guardian has done this big uh, piece of work, this big project on divestment um, over the last few months. And you know, what's become clear is that, that you can imagine a model for a fossil fuel company for the future. And you start to see the shape of it with Eon splitting its business out, for example, they're a big utility. Um, so, and, and, and just in the interview there, you know, uh, Ben Van Burden told us that uh, in 2050, we probably will have a very, very large segment of renewable energy. And you can imagine a, a fossil fuel boss, their challenge is to persuade their shareholders that this makes sense, but you can imagine them setting out a future which says over the next few decades we are going to ramp down our fossil fuels and we're going to increase like, the other parts of our business. And at that point I think most people in divestment would say, actually that's okay. But Kodak never became a digital
1: company, did it? <laughs> Good point.
0: The biggest story in the world is narrated by me, Alex Kratowski. It's produced by Alana Chance, Lindsay Poulton, Matt Hill, Nabila Shabir, Harriet Grant, and Lucy Greenwell. Sound design is by Chris Wood. Head of audio is Jason Phipps. And the executive producer is Francesca Panetta.